sometime early last year, we, we lost our dog, Willow. And by lost, I don't mean, just to reassure you, I don't mean lost in the polite way of saying that she died. I mean, we, she, we literally lost her. Um, our, our side gate has, has always been problematic. And it kind of jams shut and it takes, takes some real effort to open it. And so sometimes, especially if we're coming and going through the side gate, we would kind of close it without latching it all the way. Um, because we would know it would still be secure enough to keep the dog in the yard. Well, my dad was down visiting, and handyman that he is, he fixed our gate. Um, but we still did as normal. And so we half-latched the gate, not realizing that now it wasn't going to be secure anymore. A bit later then, though, I was, I was whippersnipping the backyard and Willow hates the whippersnipper. Like, that thing will be spinning full out, cutting those edges, and Willow's attacking that, that thing. And I'm, I'm always nervous for her, but she always seems to come off unscathed. But maybe if she didn't, then she'd stop. But anyway, I noticed that despite the fact that I'd been whippersnipping for a while, I hadn't seen Willow. She hadn't come and attacked, attacked it. But that was fine, because she was probably just inside with, it, with everyone else. Except when I finished the job and I went inside, Willow wasn't there either. And so it was then that we discovered that the side gate was open. Um, Willow's just been unwell a couple of weeks ago and I had to take her to the vet and it just evoked in, in us all these kind of feelings of, you know, if, you know, when something happens to Willow, we're not gonna be okay. I'm just, I just know that, we're, we're not. And, and so, less extreme, but, but the same kind of sentiment kicked in in realising that our dog was gone. So Merrin took off in one car, I went in another direction in my car, Macy went running and walking along the fire trail near home, Cohen took off on his bike, um, Sahara was working, I'm sure, but she, she saw the shout-out on Facebook. Uh, we, we were just we were searching everywhere, and Eamon was at home still with Grandma and Grandad. Um, as a side note, in the midst of the search, Macy, who's along the fire trail, uh, at, at some point I get a phone call from Macy, and she says, Dad, there, there's, a, there's a snake in the path, what do I do? <laughs> and, and I'm like, sweet, just step away quietly, like just, you know, should, should I go around? No, no, just step away, just walk away. And anyway, we were talking about it afterwards as, as we debriefed the whole thing, and it's like, oh, no, it was fine, Dad, it was just a common brown snake. <laughs> Just, just a common brown. <laughs> Eventually though, uh, after about, I don't know, an hour or more of looking for, for Willow, Macy was walking along our street again with an with a empty dog leash in her hand. And the people just a few doors up from our house see her and ask her if she's looking for a dog because they had found one and put her in their yard. And so we, we heard this news and oh, the relief. Our lost dog was found, so we had to celebrate and be glad. Well, that's the experience of seeking and finding and rejoicing that Jesus talks about in our stories for today, the parables that we're going to look at today. As we finish our series, we are in Luke chapter 15. So you might want to uh, open that up and have that ready before you. Luke 15 has those very familiar stories of the lost sheep, of the lost coin, and of the lost sons. And so let's look at them together. 
And the chapter opens like this, and this gives us the, the context. It says, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. This is the, the context or, or the prompt for then the stories that, that Jesus goes on to tell. Now, if you remember, Bibles originally didn't have chapter and verse markings. So if we look at the bit that comes just before this, this chapter, Jesus concludes some of his teaching with these words. He says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And then immediately after that, we read that it's tax collectors and sinners, these kind of outcast, irreligious, immoral people, that they are the ones who are gathering. Why? They're gathering around to hear Jesus. That's then contrasted, though, with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They also are gathering, but they are gathering to mutter against Jesus. The, the sense of the word is, is ongoing, prolonged criticism. And it's reminiscent of the people of Israel when they uh, were in the wilderness and they were muttering and grumbling and complaining against Moses because he had the audacity to lead them out of their slavery. And so their muttering against Jesus is that he welcomes sinners and eats with them. And it's not just that he's spending time with them, as bad as that may have been, but it's that he's at the table with them. That implies a level of welcome and inclusion and friendship that at least uh, in, in the mind of the Pharisees, it calls into question Jesus' own level of righteousness. I mean, if he was truly righteous, like, like they are, well, then he would separate himself Pardon me. He'd separate himself from such sinners so as to not be contaminated or made unclean by them. But instead, he's eating with them. He's welcoming them, which to their mind warrants their criticism. And so the parable that Jesus goes on to tell serves as a challenge or even as a rebuke to the Pharisees, if they even have the ears to hear it. So he goes on to say, suppose that one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. When Meryn and I are having an argument, which, you know, it's, it's such a rare occurrence that it's hardly worth mentioning, but, um, but on those very odd occasions when it happens, um, the clincher is almost always when Meryn gets me to put myself into the same situation. Imagine if you, you know, whatever it is, and, and where up until that moment I might have felt that I'm in the right here and I have the moral high ground and my arguments are compelling and there's a clear case against you, I'm right, you're not, and all of that, when I suddenly then put myself into a similar situation, kind of roles reversed and consider what it would be like from my side, what my reaction would be in that case, I realize that, yep, actually, I'm the one in the wrong here. And Jesus does the same in this first story. 
He says, suppose one of you. Put yourself into this situation. This is not just some random person who's got a hundred sheep that I want you to think about. Put yourself into the story as if it's your sheep. Suppose you lost your dog. Suppose you lost your sheep. What would you do? How would you react? He's trying to make them realize that if something valuable to them had been lost, that they would go out actively seeking it. And once they find it, they would rejoice and celebrate. And so Jesus says to them, if that's how you'd react to a lost sheep, well, that's how heaven reacts when a sinner repents. But how is a sheep going to be found or how is a sinner going to repent if the shepherd remains distant and separated? The shepherd has to take initiative and seek out the sheep. Likewise, God in Jesus has to seek out the lost. Or suppose, Jesus says, a woman has 10 silver coins and she loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, it's all good, sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of angels, in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Uh, a few years back, I lost my, my wedding ring. And I was sure that I lost it at church. Uh, specifically, that I'd lost it in the prayer room. And so, I don't know if you've been in there, but there's, there's couches in there. I went in there multiple times, pulling every cushion off those couches, lifting them up, moving them around, just searching everywhere, and I could not find it. I couldn't find it in my office. I couldn't find it in my bedroom, in the bathroom, or anywhere else that I could think of that might have been a place where I've taken off my ring and, and left it and, and lost it. And I did this multiple times, and I found... I found nothing. And then one day, uh, Macy was pulling an air mattress out of a box. Macy's the hero of my stories today, as it turns out. <laughs> Macy was pulling an air mattress out of a box in, in, the, in the laundry, and she heard the tinkle of a ring, specifically the tinkle of a wedding ring that had been missing for at least a year by now. Had the tinkle of a ring as it fell onto the tiled floor of our laundry. And she comes out with my ring. And again, oh, the relief. My, my lost ring was found. So we had to celebrate and be glad. We, we announced the good news on Facebook that then others could share in our joy with us. <laughs> in this second story, Jesus is further reinforcing his point. If this is how a woman reacts to her lost coin, if this is how you react to a lost wedding ring, that's how God reacts in the presence of the angels when a sinner repents. But how is a coin going to be found, or how is a sinner going to repent if the woman doesn't do anything, if she acts unconcerned and just goes about her life? The woman has to take initiative and to seek out the coin. Likewise, God in Jesus has to seek out the lost. By these stories that he's telling, Jesus is subverting the expectations of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. There was a Jewish saying of the time, 
you know, like Jesus has been telling these stories about rejoicing in heaven, there was a Jewish saying of the time that there's rejoicing in heaven before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. In other words, God rejoices, the, the, the common wisdom and saying was, God rejoices when those who sin against him and ignore him and malign him and anger him and reject him, when God rejoices when those people, when they die. So these tax collectors and sinners that Jesus is eating with, God will be happy when their life comes to an end and they no longer provoke him by their sinful ways. But that's not what Jesus says. He's changing the story. Jesus says that these tax collectors and sinners who are provoking God, that they're lost and that they need to be found. Jesus says that these tax collectors and sinners who are provoking God, that they warrant the most active of searches in order to bring them home. Jesus says that these tax collectors and sinners, that they prompt the rejoicing and the celebration of God and of his angels, not when they perish, but when they're saved and when they change their lives as a result. And so Jesus will say in reference to himself that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is why I came. I came to seek out the lost and to save them. And so Jesus continues to subvert expectations then with his last story. He continued, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the youngest son got together all that he had and he set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to, to his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, though, he said, How many of my father's hired servants, they've got food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out, and I will go back to my father, and I will say to him, Father... I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And so he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Here we see, really, don't we, the injustice of grace. Because the son did not get what he deserved. I mean, that's, that's why it's called grace. He, he lived as if his father were dead. He rejected relationship with his father. 
He selfishly wasted away the Father's good gifts and resources to him. And he lived contrary to the Father's will for him. And yet, when this son comes home, he's embraced, he's welcomed, and he's celebrated. This is not what the son was expecting. He knew, he knew that he didn't deserve such a response. He just wanted to try and just earn his way as a worker. But the father would have none of that because his son was home. His son, who was dead, is alive. His son, who is far away, is home. And so he was instantly then restored to all that that meant. And the grace then that is shown by the Father is incredible. But I want you to note that it's not that justice is not done. And if you got lost in the too many negatives in that sentence, let me say it positively. Note that justice is still done in this situation. Not done to the Son, but kind of to the Father as the father bore the cost of his son's actions. The father would rather bear the cost himself than remain alienated from this lost son whom he loves. And so Jesus is telling these stories to the Pharisees and to the teachers of the law. But the tax collectors and sinners are there too. They're near to Jesus to hear what, he's, what he has to say. And I'm sure that they were probably just as scandalized by these stories as the Pharisees were. But where the Pharisees probably just lent into their muttering and they tut-tutted Jesus and, you know, got all whatever about him. As they judged the father's extravagance response, the, the tax collectors, I could imagine, I mean, their, their heads began to lift and their, their lips to begin to quirk in, in, a, in a smile as they realized that this was a story about them, that this was a story for them. To realize that they are lost, but that the Father loves them and welcomes them home into the fullness of their sonship. The Father, He doesn't rejoice when they perish. The Father rejoices when they come home. And Jesus says, if that's how a father reacts to a lost son, that's how God reacts when a sinner repents. But how is a son to come home or how is a sinner to repent if the doors are closed and barred against them? If the father is callous and indifferent towards them? No, the, the father has to take initiative and to seek out the son who is still a long way off and has to throw off all dignity as he pulls up the skirt of his robe and restraint to run to their son and to throw his arms around him and kiss him on the neck and welcome him home. Likewise, God in Jesus has to seek out the lost. Here's though where Jesus really upsets the apple cart. Because it's shocking enough that, that God would seek out tax collectors and sinners and welcome them home. That's, I mean, that's a scandal right there. It's, it's even more shocking that they wouldn't even have to clean up their acts first, but that they could be accepted just as they are. Jesus then goes on to say, though, that the Pharisees 
and the teachers of the law that they are in just as much need of having been sought out by God. Verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Well, the older brother became angry and he refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I've never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, when, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. The older brother, who by now the Pharisees realize is referring to them. He's outside the party, outside the home, outside of sonship with the father. He stands in judgment on the younger brother. And as he does so, he, he misses out on the father's love and extravagance and abundance. What's ironic in this story is that the younger brother comes home to be hired as a worker but he's treated as a son. While the elder brother, who actually has all the rights and the privileges of being a son, is acting just like a hired hand. And there's nothing to say that the father has to go out to the field to the, to the older son. But just as he saw the, the youngest son a long way off and he ran to him, so too the father sees the older son out in the field and he seeks him out. And what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees is, there's no us and them. The actions of the Pharisees may be very different to that of the tax collectors, but they just as much are still outside the Father's house, outside the party, outside the experience of sonship. So Jesus says, there's no us who are better and them who are lesser and worse, because actually we're all them. The father's concern is for both sons. We're all in need of a father who seeks us out. Now, we're not told how the older son responded. We're not told if he went in and joined the party or not. And the father doesn't force him to either. He pleads with him. He, he tries to persuade him. He reveals his loving and generous heart. But then the response is left up to the son. But if that's how a father reacts to a son who's acting like he's just a, a hired staff member. That's how God reacts when a sinner repents. But how is a son who is slaving away in the fields to come home and to enjoy the party, or how is a sinner to repent if the father doesn't seek him out? The father has to take the initiative and seek out the son who is still a long way off in the hardness of his heart and to invite him into the fullness of the father's love. And so likewise, God in Jesus has to seek out the lost. 
in this passage, in these stories, there is absolutely an invitation to be found by the seeking God and to come home. If you're, if you're here today and, and you know that you are lost, that you're away from the Father's love, whether that's because you know, you're like a tax collector and the youngest son and, and living wildly, or whether that's because you're, you're like a Pharisee and an older son and just doing everything you can to be good and right and, and in yourself and to earn the Father's love in, in that way. Whatever case, God is seeking you and he desires you to come home and come into the party and come into his love. And so if that is you, you know, as we consider these parables today, don't miss the invitation of Jesus, that he is seeking you out. And so will you be found by him? That invitation is absolutely there in these stories. But in fact, Jesus is making a different point, though. Because remember, these stories are told in response to the, Pharise- the muttering of the Pharisees, that he welcomes sinners and, and eats with them. So these stories serve as a rebuke, really, to the hardness of heart towards the lost that Jesus has come to seek and to save. And so the challenge of the story really is to ask, as as the challenge to the Pharisees, but it's the challenge to us as we listen to them now, is to ask, is our heart for the lost, is it the same as God's? Is our heart aligned with God's heart? for those who don't know him. Because if it is, it should be evidence in our behavior. Um, What what does our behavior communicate about our heart? We can see the Pharisees' heart in their behavior, when they're judging, when they're separating themselves, when, when there's this prideful moral superiority. But we can also see Jesus' heart in his behavior as he comes in proximity as he welcomes, as he includes, as he loves. And it's not that he gave them a free pass on their behavior. His stories talk about repentance, but there's the recognition that the changed life comes after salvation, not not before it. And so these stories really challenge us to ask, is our heart for the lost evidently, you know, in our behavior and in our actions, is our heart for the lost aligned with God's heart? There's the last thing that stands out to me about this story, and um, with this we'll, we'll wrap up. And that is that Jesus' holiness was attractive to sinners. Now, those are not two words that you would naturally put together. Holy, sinners. They're, they're diametrically opposed to each other. You know, we sing holy, 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 which comes from Isaiah's, well, it comes from multiple places, but one place is is Isaiah's experience where he then beholds this holy, holy, holy God and he just falls flat on his face. I am undone because my lips are unclean and I've seen the Lord. Being a sinner and being holy, these things are wildly opposed to each other. And yet, Jesus, in all of his perfect holiness and righteousness, was attractive to sinners. They sought him out. They gathered near to him. Now, the Pharisees, 
I mean, they were those. If you were, if you were living at the times, you were talking about who's the most holy person that you, that you know, you know, having those kind of conversations, which aren't probably typical table conversations, but if you were having that kind of a chat, you would easily be rattling off the name of this Pharisee, that Pharisee, you know, like all, all the Pharisees that you knew, these are the most holy people that you knew. They were the exemplars of it. And yet their holiness kept them separated and apart from the tax collectors and sinners, essentially because they, they feared contamination by them. And this distance from sinners, well, it was then reciprocated. Because who really wants to be around people who are just going to judge and condemn them? But Jesus had a different approach. Jesus drew near. And in response, sinful people drew near to him. They sought him out. They wanted his, his company. They wanted to be in his presence. His holiness was not something that kept him apart from them, but rather it was compelling and appealing to them. He never compromised his standards. He never shied away from truth. But he lived and spoke in a way that people who were far away from God drew near to him. Holiness, as lived by Jesus, had a beauty about it that, that invited others and especially invited sinners to draw near. And I'm just left with the question. Uh, I think I'm still sitting with that, that idea and still processing, meditating on, on what, it, what it means. But as far as I am so far, I'm just left with the question that can the same be said of us? Can the same be said of me? That the way I'm living my Christian life as I'm seeking to be a holy person, is that beautiful and attractive and compelling to others in a way that would draw them near? So in these stories, we have an invitation that if you are lost, to be found. We have a challenge for us about whether our heart is aligned with God's heart for the lost as we see in the actions of Jesus. And then there's this, I don't know what it is, a question about the way we're living out our holy life. Is it beautiful and attractive and compelling to others. Let's pray together that it may be so. Jesus, we thank you for these stories that you've told that speak to us still today. And I pray that they remind us, for, for those of us who are Christians, who have been so for two weeks or 50 years, whatever it is, that it would remind us that we too were lost. And but for your grace, but for your seeking us out, we would still be lost. But in your love for us, you sought us out and you delighted in saving us and you celebrate and rejoice that we are now part of your, part of your family, that we've come home. 
May we not become blasé and complacent about that. May we not lose the wonder of what you have done. That it was none of our effort or merit, but that you just, you just love and you seek and you welcome and you call us to yourself and we've been found. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for carrying us home on your shoulders and rejoicing to have us with you. And Jesus, I'm mindful that there's some here today who maybe that's not their experience. And I pray that they would know that you are not a, a distant police officer judging God, standing at a distance and condemning them. But that you're a, you're a man who's lost one of his sheep. You're a woman who's lost one of her coins. That you're a father who's lost in different ways both sons. And that you passionately seek them out. And if that is you, and you, and you, want, to, you want to be found this morning, I invite you to pray just, just in your heads with me to say, Jesus, I'm lost and far from you. And I want to respond to your seeking me out. And I want to come home. I want to come into your family. I want to receive the life that you would offer. And I would know, and I know, Jesus, that this comes not because of any goodness in me, but because you put out love and grace on me. And you've given me something I don't deserve to welcome me home. And if, that, if that's you, and if you prayed that, love to talk to you afterwards. Uh, or, or let someone know, that'd be awesome. But Jesus, too, we want to pray. We are your people. You have called us. You've saved us. You've brought us into your family. And there's the, you, you've sent your spirit into our lives to, to live in us and through us. And so we need to be, we should be, we need to be becoming more and more like you. And as we do so, Jesus, I pray that you just imbue our lives individually and collectively with a with a holiness that is just beautiful to behold, with something that is attractive and appealing and compelling, not then that we would be anything great, but that we would be able to, that you through us would be able to draw others to know you and to know your love. May you, Jesus, characterize our lives more and more that we would have your heart for the lost, that we would live out your holiness um, and that we'd be who you call us to be. We pray this uh, in your name. Amen.